his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day. Super producer JQ's here sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is off in Florida doing some fantastic stuff for veterans. Hey, what's up, Joe Willie? And uh, I'm saying hello to someone on Facebook because if you didn't know, the first episode, the first half hour of the morning briefing airs live on Facebook Live, so you can watch me flail about and try to be entertaining, and it'll be great. Anyway, we've got a fantastic show. Hopefully, we've not heard confirmation yet, but hopefully, we will have Justin Brown from Hill Vets on the show, and uh, he will be telling us the latest goings on on Capitol Hill. And then we are going to play our interview with Brian Tully. Now, Brian is a arm is a uh, military veteran who suffered some pr- pretty horrible stuff at the hands of the VA. We like to talk about the good the VA does. We also talk about the bad the VA does. And this guy got it pretty bad. So we'll hear his story. And I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, check out the website, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. And make sure you're following us on social media, where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off in the veteran sphere. We stay on top of that stuff because we are the veteran community. Here at ConnectingVets.com, every single person that works here knows what it's like to put that uniform on and take it off for the last time. We know the struggles you face. We know the information you need, and we make sure to give it to you because helping you helps us. It's that whole circle of life thing the Lion King told us about. It's great, isn't it? All right, let's check out the headlines. Let's see what's going on here on ConnectingVets.com. Here is something that we'd like to talk again. The VA does some fantastic stuff, and not just healthcare. They also help with benefits and things like that, and there are so many different monetary benefits that you can get from the VA. The problem, I think, comes in when you start looking at the bureaucracy because there's paperwork for the paperwork. You got to fill out this form just so you can fill out that form. And it's very complex. And because the system is so large and so um, complex, there are a lot of different ways people can take advantage of it. And here's a story coming out of Huntington, West Virginia. A West Virginia woman has pleaded guilty to stealing military veterans' benefits. 38-year-old Brandy Moore of Galopolis Ferry entered a plea in federal court in Huntington. And uh, what happened was she had a family member who was a veteran and died in November of 2011. However, Moore did not report the death and continued to take uh, the benefits that were uh, being dis- continued to take the benefits that were dedicated to that veteran, and she kept doing it. And she ended up making away with nearly thirty five thousand dollars. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, because usually when we talk about VA fraud, we're talking about millions of dollars. Like there was that story of that contractor who worked a parking lot, 
and was like bribing people and made off with like five million dollars and it was a horrible horrible thing but any fraud waste and abuse is bad because it taxes the system and that's thirty five thousand dollars that could have gone into the pocket of a needy veteran so this woman is well a scumbag that's a technical term if you didn't know scumbag uh, uh, scumbage in the old English. I have no idea if that's true or not, but anyway, she's a scumbag, and uh, she uh, faces up to ten years in prison and a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar fine. You gotta love that poetic nature. Like, okay, you stole thirty five thousand dollars. That's all well and good. <laughs> now give us two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Thirty five grand is gonna cost you a quarter of a million dollars. God bless America. That's all I got to say. That's all I got to say about that. Anyway, let's talk about something else. Here is something a little more uplifting. A special forces medic who def- who defied a barrage of enemy fire in Afghanistan ten years ago, saving the lives of other wounded soldiers, will receive the Medal of Honor. President Donald Trump will def- will present Staff Sergeant Ronald J. Schur the nation's highest military award for valor on October first ceremony at the White House. Schur, who served with the Third Special Forces Group, will have his silver star upgraded for his actions in April sixth of two thousand eight. It's always You know, this is the thing about Medal of Honor situations, and and there are specific situations that I like to think of as Medal of Honor situations, and that is everyone likes to talk a big game. Like, if you ask any soldier, any sailor, any Marine, any airman, any even any Coast Guardsman, because the Coast Guard has won a Medal of Honor, and you ask them, would you run into enemy, into daunting enemy fire for the good of the mission. And everyone will say, oh, yeah, of course I would. What are you talking about? I'm a hardcore hua hua soldier or a Marine. I would do it, of course. But when the time comes and the rubber hits the road, it really is, it takes that special sort of um, person that can really rise to the occasion. And from what I'm reading here, sure was is absolutely that guy, is absolutely that guy. He's going to receive it uh, not posthumously. He's still alive. Uh, Let's see. He was assigned to Special Task Force 33 uh, when a group of elite soldiers was was clearing a high-value targets in the Shock Valley. Uh, There was sniper, machine gun, and rocket propelled grenade fire rained down on the assault element, sustaining multiple casualties on the mountainside. Sure, braved enemy fire to treat a wounded soldier when RPG shrapnel struck his neck. He then spent the next hour fighting insurgents, killing many in the process before before providing aid to four injured American soldiers and ten wounded Afghan commandos. The White House said in a statement, after treating the wounded, then Staff Sergeant Schur began evacuating them, carrying and lowering the casualties down the mountainside, using his body to shield them from enemy fire and debris. After transporting all the wounded to a medevac helicopter, Schur returned to the site of the fighting to re-engage the enemy despite taking a bullet in his helmet and arm. Uh, His Silver Star citation reads this, Sergeant Schur rendered life-saving aid to four critically wounded casualties for more than five and a half hours. As the lone, as the lone medic at the besieged location and almost overrun and fighting against nearly 200 insurgent fighters, Sergeant Schur 
brave Sergeant Schurz's bravery and poise under fire saved the lives of all wounded casualties under his care. So God bless you. Uh, what's your full name? Sergeant Ronald J. Shurer. You did a fantastic job. The Medal of Honor is is like the Purple Heart. It's not one of those awards you want to earn. Like, I don't know. I never met anyone in my time who was out there going, man, I hope I win the Medal of Honor. Especially because when I deployed, I deployed to Iraq. And if you didn't know, there are only four Iraq Medal, medals of honor that have been issued for this for the war in Iraq and th- three out of the four of, actually, I think it's three out of four let me check that real quick hang on medal of honor recipients let's see this is going to go to the Wikipedia page this is the medal of honor recipients all the way down to the bottom let's see uh, post Vietnam war veterans Let's see, we got uh, Somalia, so we got uh, Sergeants Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, obviously. There are, uh, I believe, 17, soon to be 18 Medals of Honor for Afghanistan, and Iraq has four. Jason Dunham, Ross A. McGinnis, Michael A. Monsoor, and Paul R. Smith. All four of them are posthumous, and three out of the four of them are for diving on a grenade. So, I mean... That's the kind. That's the level of auspice that it takes to earn the Medal of Honor. So I don't know anyone who thought, "Man, I hope I can jump on a grenade today and save some people," because that usually ends bad for you. And you know, the dead care not for awards, but the family does, and that's what this is important. So God bless Ronald Schur. I hope you and your family is very proud of what you've done, and I hope that you can uh, enjoy your Medal of Honor. Well, I'm glad you can because you're still alive. All right, let's go to something else here. Here we go. We've talked before about veteran treatment courts. Now, if you don't know, what these are is if a veteran gets in trouble for something like starting a fight or a drunk driving incident. And it comes out that there happened because of wartime injuries like post-traumatic stress, TBI, uh, any of those things, they can get a special exception. And uh, this is coming out of Livingston. I'm not sure what city, what state that's in, but Livingston County's Veteran Treatment Court received a $50,000 grant that's from Michigan, from the Michigan Supreme Court to help fund day-to-day operations. The treatment court is also planning to add full-time veteran coordinators who will oversee the court thanks to the grant from the Veteran Affairs Department. Uh, Sarah Applegate, the court program court's program liaison, said the coordinator will be able to make sure that the court can help veterans obtain housing and therapy. So uh, one of them, she also says that one of the most unique things we have is a mentor program. We have mentors that are veterans themselves who will be matched with participants to support and help the participants. So again, this is for, you know, people who get in trouble, but, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think Eric Dame is right that, I mean, okay, I can't speak for you people out there. Yeah, you people. You listeners, I'm sorry, that was horrible. I apologize. But I can't speak for y'all, but for me, I always hate being put on a pedestal for my service. Like, I mean, 
even though it was 13 years, two tours in Iraq, drill sergeant tour, all this other stuff, I just viewed it as a job I did. It was just kind of a thing I did. And it makes me feel awkward when people are like, oh, you should be put on a pedestal. You should be glorified and revered for your service. And I'm thinking like, you know how many nights I sat in the gunner station of a tank just staring at nothing? Because they got to remember, the war in Iraq, or the war on terror, isn't like World War II or World War One when there was constant fighting. The war on terror, especially my, my experience in Iraq, is that war is 90% mind-numbing boredom followed by 10% pants-filling terror. And then it goes back to the boredom again. Because that's how it works. You'll be sitting there on a location. You'll be driving around. Nothing will be happening. Then, boom, you'll hit an IED. You'll get some small arms fire. You'll return fire. It's hectic. And then it goes back to being quiet again. I mean, when I think of, like, people try to call me a hero. And for me, I'm saying, wait, I'm not a hero. You want to talk about a hero, talk about my granduncle, uh, Wilbur Meyer. He was a first lieutenant in the Army Air Corps back in World War II. He was the co-pilot of uh, the Hell No Gal, a B-17 that got shot down behind enemy lines. He was injured, but he made sure all his crew bailed out before he crash-landed his, <clears throat> his B-17, then spent two years in a German POW camp. That's a hero. Or Ronald Schurer. You know, uh, that's a hero. Me, I just kind of sat in the tank and stared at nothing for a long time. I mean, I had my combat experiences, obviously, but a lot of it was just me sitting there. So I don't like, the point of this is I don't like being put on a pedestal, and I also don't like making an excuse of, oh, you know, you don't mind me, I was just a veteran. You know, so this veteran treatment courts, it's like, on the one hand, I get it. People with severe PTS or traumatic brain injury, their minds don't function right. And it, it's a mal they have a malfunction in their brain. And sometimes it may cause them to lash out and act violently or make bad decisions. But at the end of the day, it doesn't control you. Your PTS, your TBI... It's not like a brain parasite that's forcing your actions. You are in control of your actions all the time. And especially these days, the avenues that there are for help are just near endless. Like there's so many different ways that you can get help while you're in the service. And as we talk about every single day here on ConnectingVets.com, how you can get help on the outside once you leave the service that when I see someone talk about, oh, I broke the law, but it was because of my service. It was because I was a veteran. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know. Like, should that be an excuse? What do you think? Let me know on Facebook Live or send us an email. Send me an email, jake at connectingvets.com. And let me know, do you think that that should, like, earn you a free pass? That you should be able to just, I mean, <sighs> Again, it's complicated because I'm a compassionate guy. I want to say someone that made a mistake should be able to have... I, I understand there are extenuating circumstances. But at the same time, if you DUI 
You get a DUI, you didn't just put your life at risk, you put other people's lives at risk. How many times do we hear about some teenager or some family in a minivan doing the right thing? I know Eric Dame doesn't think minivans can do the right thing on the road, but doing the right thing, driving safely, and then some drunk driver just plows into them and they all die and the drunk driver is fine. It's like that can happen. And so when you get a DUI, I don't think there should be an extenuating circumstances. Sure. Yeah. I understand you have PTSD, you have TBI, you still broke the law. And I think you need to pay the consequences. Now, I don't know if these veteran treatment courts will actually let them. Uh, I'm trying to read the story as I'm talking here. I can't do two things at once. My brain, me no brain good. Um, let's see. Veteran court, work with veterans who have been charged with crimes in a specialized court docket that gives a greater focus on decision making of veterans. As a participant in the program, the veteran participates in a judicially supervised treatment plan developed with the team of the court staff, healthcare professionals, peer mentors, and mental health professionals. <clears throat> so that's great. That is great. And uh, on the surface, that sounds like the best deal in the world. Veterans who suffer from PTS and TBI get the help they need. Question, though. What about rape victims? Hmm? You can get PTSD from that. Does Are they going to get a special treatment court? Or what about high school, college, or professional athletes? They can get TBI pretty easily. Do they get a treatment court? What about someone who was in a car accident that got a brain injury? Do they get a treatment court? You see where I'm going with this. Like, where do you draw the line? I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think veterans should be a protected class. We shouldn't be able to say, oh, he should be in trouble, but you know what? He's a veteran. We'll let this pass. I mean, that sounds good, but it doesn't. It sets a deadly precedent because what will come after us? Because on the one hand, yeah, you served your country dutifully. You put your life in harm's way. You did all this stuff. You deserve certain respect and certain consideration. But then what comes next? Because as we, it, it's like in the court, it sets a precedent that at the end of the day, some other group may come up and say, hey, they had a bad deal. Well, we had a bad deal too. What about us? And so it's, it's, a, it's as a former tank commander of mine said, it's a sticky wicket. And it's one of those things that we really need to keep an eye on because at the end of the day, if we don't, if we keep setting this precedent, eventually it's going to come back to bite us. Because I mean, who's to say that some that you know, it's the it's the double edged sword of free, it's like the double edged sword of free speech. Yeah, I can say whatever I want, and the government can't censor me. But it also means the government can't censor you know a white supremacist or a Nazi rally or a communist rally because Nazis are just as bad as commies. And so, like, where do you draw the line? What What's the distinction between someone who got a bad deal in the military and someone who got a bad deal out on the streets? You know, it's just, it's like, it's complicated. It, it's, it's a sticky wicket. And I think it's the kind of thing that we need to keep an eye on because 
it could come back to bite us in the butt. I'm just saying. Now, let's go on to something a little funnier. <clears throat> if you don't know, on ConnectingVets.com, every Friday, I post uh, the memes of the week. This is the funniest me- military memes i found from trolling Facebook and, and Twitter when I should be working. I uh, just let's uh, let's pretend I didn't say that. <clears throat> moving, on, <laughs> moving on. And uh, if you didn't know, something I want to talk about for a second: the EU, the European Union, has recently passed what's called Article Thirteen. And uh, Article Thirteen, what it does, you know what? I'm going to Google it real quick. Hang on, Article Thirteen. Uh. Okay, let's see what Article 13 is. Basically, it has to do with cop- copyright law. It uh, What it is, is it's asking social media to input filters to stop people from breaking copyright. The problem is, a lot of memes, like people using subversive memes, use copyrighted images. But they're under fair use because they're transformative. As in, you take a picture, like a good example, let's see, what's one that's currently going around? Um, The Avengers Infinity War one where it says, where Doctor Strange says, let me guess your home, and Thanos is like, it was, and it was beautiful. You you may have seen that, you may have not, I don't know. Anyway, it, it uses, yes, it uses screen captures from Marvel and from Disney but it's transformed by the text and by the images in the background. That falls under what's called fair use. Fair use means if you're using copyrighted material in a way that transforms the material in some way, shape, or form, it's under fair use. The problem is Article 13 doesn't have any caveats for fair use, meaning anytime someone uses a copyrighted image, it could be banned. And that's bad juju because it stifles free speech. Now, I know it's the European Union. They don't have free speech laws, but it's still messed up. And the backlash from this has been huge. It's been huge, as the president would say, with a Y. And so I posted some memes on ConnectingBets.com that uh, an extra heap and help in the memes this time because, you know, America. And I'm not going to just sit there and, you know, let the European Union can ban all the memes they want. I'm going to keep on memeing. That's me, though. Again, what do I know? I was only a sergeant. All right, let's talk about something else really quick. Why 95-year-old handed out over 6,000 candy bars to neighbors. This is very interesting from our own uh, Kayla. Oh, this is an AP story. Okay. Let's see. The 95-year-old's kindness has us asking, won't you be my neighbor? Bob Williams is a retired teacher and World War II veteran who gave out over 6,000 Hershey's chocolate bars to his neighbor. The Iowa resident has been sharing the sweets for the past decade and is known locally as the Candyman. Now, I got to say, if you know anything about the show, if you follow me, you'll know I am a fan of horror movies. Which means that the word, the term Candyman means something very different to me. It has something to do with bees. 
Hayes and Tony Todd and a hook and being awesome. That's just me, though. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. Uh, let's see. Bob Williams said he noticed that sharing the chocolate made people smile, so he just started buying the candy in bulk to give the people at the doctor's office or the supermarket. It's a simple yet sweet way to share the love in his small town. And that's really cool. You know, I really like that. Anyway, coming up on The Morning Briefing, we're going to replay our interview with Brian Talley to find out what horrors, what what bad, bad juju happened at the uh, VA for him. And then after that, hopefully... We're going to have Justin Brown of Hellvets. So we will see if they come by. And if they don't, oh well, we'll have a bit of a truncated show. It's all good. Anyway, I'm going to remind you one last time to check out the website, ConnectingBets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. You can hear stories about tales of big game in Vietnam. That's another podcast from our own guru phil briggs you can find out about va home loans you can find out about the navy the fight to save the navy peacoat is underway you can find my memes lots of really cool stuff and make sure you're following us on social media where we are at connecting vets on all the big four and i'm not talking about metallica anthrax slayer and megadeth metal i'm talking about facebook youtube instagram and twitter follow us get the latest and greatest information you'll know exactly when things pop out from the veteran sphere because we stay on top of that stuff we'll be back with brian tally in just a little bit here on the morning briefing i'm jake hughes you're awesome stick around we shall return We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we do, and I'm going to tell you why we do it. It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have put on that uniform, and just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off for that last time. 13 years in the Army for Super Producer Jake Hughes, 13 years in the Navy for me, and every other member of our team either has served or is serving. In the case of Kayla Jackson, who is serving in the National Guard and has been called up to deal with the fallout from Hurricane Florence. That's why we're doing what we do, and we ask that you check out what we're doing by visiting ConnectingVets.com as often as you can. And, of course, follow us on social media to be kept abreast of the latest and greatest things going on on the site. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. We're going to talk to him about his time in the Corps briefly and then move on to what he's doing right now, and that is holding the VA accountable for... Boy, some nightmares that he's had to go through. He is Brian Talley, who joins us now. Brian, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. As I mentioned, United States Marine. Tell me just a little bit about your service, you know, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you were serving in the Corps. I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1994 uh, from Woodland Park, Colorado. Uh, that's where I uh, went to high school and, 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 and graduated. Uh, and then in 95, I went to boot camp. And uh, after boot camp, I was stationed in Camp Lejeune. Then I PCS to Okinawa, Japan, and then I PCS for the third time 
to Camp Pendleton, California, served just under five years, active duty in the Marine Corps. Just under five years with uh, three PCS moves, it sounds like, wrapped in there. I know what that's all about. My 13 years, I think I did seven or eight of them. I mean, it's it's part of military life. Of course, after that nearly five years, military life came to an end for you to some extent. I mean, I know once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. But what do you recall about that time where you finally, you know, that EAOS date came up and you got that last paycheck from the Marine Corps and then bam, you're a civilian again. What do you recall about that time? Well, my daughter had just been born, Alana. She was born in Camp Pendleton at the Naval Hospital there. And uh, we got out, like I said, uh, in the summer of 99. And, you know, it was a pretty tough transition just trying to um, you know, find a job immediately, you know, as I had to provide for my family. And, uh, that didn't take me very long to, to get on my feet and start, start moving forward. And I got into, uh, uh, operating my own company, uh, for, for close to 13 years. And, uh, that's pretty much, you know, it, I mean, when you th- it was a good time. When you think back to the struggles that you faced when you got out, and as you said, a, a bit of a difficult transition, at least at first, what do you think are the things that helped you get through that? What are some recommendations you would make to, to someone who's going through the same thing right now or who may come up against similar issues when they leave the service in the near future? I, I, don't, I don't know. Was it your family? I mean, there, there has to be something when you have difficulty and then all of a sudden yeah. it gets better. Or was it just one day things kind of worked out for you? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a motivator, you know, so I've always been a, a go-getter, a, a driver, uh, somebody that's, you know, scared to death to fail. Mm. So I've always, you know, put everything on my back, on my shoulders, driven forward. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a type A personality. I like to get things done. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just was, you know, just forward. Sometimes the fear of what's coming for someone who is a high performer and they've been doing something like you were in the Marine Corps for four plus years and then you get out and it's time to do something new. Just that fear alone can be something that causes problems for people, even if they do find success uh, eventually when they get out, don't you think? Sure, sure. You know, you got, you know, a, you know, a lot of us, you know, especially me, you know, deal with anxiety issues and, uh, you know, like I said, you know, the fear of failure. Uh, so you just try to do everything you can to to be the best you can, to lead by example. Uh, and, and like I said, my most important thing is to provide for my family uh, and uh, just be an honorable citizen. We're speaking with Marine Corps veteran Brian Talley about his time in the service and afterwards. And Brian, the reason that you're in Washington, D.C., and the main issue that we're going to talk to you about today has to do with the VA and specifically has to do with a medical issue that you've been dealing with for a little while now. Can you tell us just a little bit about that issue and and where it arose from and when it first uh, started affecting you? Uh, Sure. Um, I've always been, you know, a fairly physically healthy uh, man. Um, And in January of 2016, I uh, started to experience some pretty severe back pain to the point to where I I, I couldn't walk, I I couldn't get out of bed. Um, I had severe night sweating, you know, as if somebody put a hose in my bed. Um, And I, I mean, I I was in just critical, severe pain. It's almost, uh, you can't really explain it. 
for people who have dealt with back issues, and, and I have, some of which are related to my military service, there's not much worse than back pain because it affects your entire body. I mean, if your back is not working properly, it's basically the structure of your body that's holding everything up. So it, it, it sounds like it rendered you almost unable to do anything. I mean, were you, were you essentially bedridden by this injury? Yes, I, well, I couldn't, I couldn't even lay in bed. I mean, I was, for, for days, I was on the bathroom floor um, just trying to find some relief from the cold, cold tiles. Um, I had a very hard time using the bathroom because I had a urinary hesitancy because I, I could, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't go to the bathroom because my back, the pain was just so extreme that I, I, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, th- I, mean I felt like I was dying, literally. Um, and that's when my wife decided to take me into the ER. Um, I'm not a guy that goes to the ER for a cough hmm. or a runny nose. Um, I try to avoid the doctor's office like the plague. And when I go to the ER... That means I'm, I'm in need of emergency care. And was it a VA ER that your wife took you to at that time? Yes, yes. Um, I, I went. I went to the VA ER in uh, Loma Linda, California. And at that time, um, I was struggling to even get through the front door. Um, they uh, triaged me. They gave me an X-ray. They diagnosed me with a low back sprain. And gave me a shot of Dilaudid, a shot of Kenalog, a bag of pills. Um, stated that I didn't need to see a doctor because my condition wasn't severe enough. It didn't render a uh, immediate action from a doctor. Um, like I said, the diagnosis of a low back sprain sent me home to rest and informed me to follow up with my primary care physician um, at the VA Murrieta in California. And... Was that what you had to do? I mean, it sounds like you didn't really receive too much medical care. You received some medical uh, uh, devices in the form of pills and shots and things like that. Was it your VA primary care physician that you were first able to uh, to get to look at the in- at this injury and start doing something about it? Well, uh, we were informed to follow up with her um, when we left the ER. For the next two days, my wife would be calling and be on hold for 45 to over an hour, hour and 15 minutes at a time, she tried calling him. I want to say it was documented eight or nine different times um, in that period of, you know, being on hold. <laughs> and we, we could never get through. Um, so she, she was taking care of me um, as we didn't know what was going on. We couldn't get through to the ER. My conditions had gotten worse over the next two days to the point to where, you know, uh, we couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I was just in, in, in just debilitating, undescribable pain. And at that point, my wife loaded me up in the car and took me back to the VA ER. And now I'm in a wheelchair getting pushed through the doors of the VA ER the ER is completely packed full of veterans. And at, at that time when we got to the ER, 
um, I, I began to have a panic attack due to the pain and my wife began to cry. She was comforted by other veterans. Uh, we tried to get in immediately to see a doctor. We had to wait some time. Uh, but when we did get in, finally, uh, they yelled at my wife for bringing me back to the ER when they stated to me that I was supposed to follow up with my primary care physician in which we tried everything in our power to do. Um, at that time, they gave me two shots of Dilaudid, which is morphine, um, and another full bag of pills. Uh, I was taking handful, handfuls of pills. My wife had to set her alarm every four hours to feed me pills um, for a very long time. The second ER visit, um, I, I didn't see a doctor. Um, and, you know, looking back at it, uh, you know, I should have been admitted. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, I, and I wish I was. Uh, they stated that my condition didn't, didn't render a, a, a blood test um, or an MRI um, because of the x-ray showed that everything was normal and everything was fine. From what I understand, despite the VA saying, oh, you don't need an MRI, x-ray shows that everything's fine. Of course, that is, even to a non-doctor, ludicrous because why we have MRIs is to see the things that x-rays don't bring up that are going on inside of you. You guys actually went and had your own MRI done, from what I understand. Paid for it out of pocket, brought that back to the VA, and then the VA's uh, outlook on what was going on with you changed, didn't it? Yes, sir. About a month later, three weeks later, uh, my wife said, enough is enough. You're, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was already down close to 40 pounds. I was urinating in a bucket. Uh, I, I couldn't uh, get out of a recliner I was in. I ate all three meals um, a day. My wife would bring me up a sandwich and, you know, every now and again, all my pills. And when I needed to, to, to use the bathroom, I would very carefully <laughs> slide out of my chair and kind of straddle over a bucket. And I would just drip into this bucket to try to empty my bladder because it was one, one it was very hard to, to, to use the bathroom. Um, and, and now looking back at it, it was because of, you know, I had a, you know, severe back problem that was going on that nobody really knew about. Uh, so when we got the MRI, it showed that we had a bunch of um, st structural problems in my back, which we were scratching our head. We had no idea why, you know, why my back was uh, failing. And uh, the, the MRI that we paid for out of pocket um, you know, essentially ended up saving my life because it showed that I needed surgery. And when we sent that MRI to the VA, two weeks later, I was able to see an orthopedic surgeon who, and now this is in March uh, timeframe. So now I've been dealing with this for over two months and uh, they uh, scheduled my surgery uh, for December. I think it was December the 9th. Um, of 2016, which would have been, you know, nine, nine months later. And when they do the surgery and this story, people can read about it in a, a great story. Matt Sainsing did on connectingvets.com. Turns out they go in there and they find that your spine is basically crumbling apart. It looks as they put it moth eaten and that you actually had a staph infection of the spine. They halted the surgery. Uh, this is something that again, they probably would have found a little bit earlier if they had taken the steps that they should have taken how does that feel when you find out that there's something going on that any one of a number of normal steps, <coughs> apologize for this cough. Wow. 
any one of these normal steps that people would have assumed the doctors at the VA would have taken could have saved you a lot of pain and heartache. Yeah, to scoot back a little bit there, um, when, when I was meeting with the orthopedic surgeon or with his uh, assistant back in March of 16 when they scheduled my surgery for December, my wife said, that's unacceptable. We cannot wait nine months to get my husband taken care of because he's dying and we need to get him fixed. There's something going, uh, there's something wrong with him. Um, so uh, Veterans Choice Enrollment uh, approved me uh, to get the surgery done in San Diego at a uh, civilian hospital, Scripps, and um, Dr. Abbottball out of San Diego uh, performed the surgery on April 30th. So now we're about four months into this. They opened me up, and he had a shock on, on the table, on the operating table. He found that my spine had been moth-eaten, and he uh, called in the infectious disease doctor, uh, and they started running a bunch of tests. They re- had to remove some bone, some spinal bone tissue, uh, and uh, they went through. They had to go through my belly. They had to go through my back uh, to get you know, to get all of this moth-eaten, uh, very scarred-type tissue, uh, uh, very, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the words they used, but it was severely infected. And um, at, at that point, they thought I had cancer, so they started um, to test me for everything possible, everything under the sun after my surgery, uh, and a couple of days later in the hospital, I spent a, about a week or so in the hospital and, uh, I had tested positive for a bone eating staph infection that had aggressively attacked my spine and had been eaten away at it for four months, which now explains why I couldn't go to the bathroom. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't walk. I, I, I couldn't do anything. I was completely, uh, just incapacitated. It's a horrifying story, and we're speaking with Brian Talley, Marine Corps veteran, about everything that he's gone through uh, over the last couple of years since he had uh, what started off as, as severe back pain and turned into something uh, much worse and got worse because of what the VA did, or more specifically, didn't do. Some very basic things like blood tests and MRIs. Brian, this whole story is a nightmare scenario. I mean, it's it's what people worry about and what the, when they hear about horror stories from the VA. This is a, a perfect example of that. At what point did you decide I need to do something about this? When you realized that that much of uh, the continuing issues that you had were made worse by the VA's inaction originally. You know, I I have never sued anybody in my life. Um, I, you know, I've always worked hard, provided for my family, did everything on my own. I've never, you know, <laughs> been an ambulance chaser. I've never, you know, looked, yeah, you know, for, you know, for, for ways to sue people. I, I just don't really believe in that. So it took me a long time to really understand what happened to me. Um, and, uh, to, to understand just what the hell happened. Um, and I continued to have severe pain uh, in my spine, and it started going up and through my neck. And I started to have a lot of residual effects from, from the infection um, in my belly that controlled a lot of different things, you know, using the bathroom, you know, 
you know, just everything. <laughs> Uh, do, do, dozens of uh, residual side effects and and and, and new diagnoses that I have. So um, finally, in March of 2017, the VA doctor listened to me and said, "We're going to perform a myelogram on you." And at that point, they stated to me that I had uh, suffered permanent injury uh, uh, due to the spinal infection that kind of ate ate away at my insides. Um, so. Um, at that point, so now we're about 14 months into the a, a initial back pain. So now we're in March of 2017. I'm told that I got permanent injury, and at that point, I file a tort claim. I filed a tort claim for $2,175,000 for neglect, malpractice, causing permanent injury, and nearly death. Now, the VA originally admitted that you would receive substandard care and said, hey, this is this is on us. This is our fault. But then it turns out that there's a law on the books from 70 plus years ago that if the uh, medical provider is an independent contractor, that the VA isn't responsible for it. Turns out that the primary care provider that they sent you to was an independent contractor. And then the VA changed their tune, didn't they? They sure did. Um, about seven months into the process of waiting for the tort claim, um, I was receiving calls from VA attorneys stating to me, and I quote, the VA failed to meet the standard of care. Uh, there, uh, there was a breach uh, in, uh, in liability and that they are looking to settle this case. Uh, it will not be going to federal court uh, because they, they openly admitted it. The VA failed to meet the standard of care. There was a breach, and we are going to be settling your case. Um, they told me that the VA ER was responsible, as well as my primary care physician. When I did see my primary care physician, finally, after that second ER visit back in 2016, she, all she did was agree with the misdiagnosis. She agreed with the original di uh, diagnosis that the ER gave me. And that's all she did. Um, so, uh, so the neglect and malpractice um, and, and, and happened by both by both entities, the ER as well as my primary care physician. Um, at month eight, month nine, and month ten, the the VA attorneys were still claiming that that the VA failed to meet the standard of care and they're just waiting on their last and final um, in independent review and medical opinion. And finally, at about 10, 10 and a half month mark of me filing my tort claim, I get a letter in the mail that states that they denied my claim, which nearly gave me a heart attack because at this point I haven't worked. I'm still dealing with crazy pain, uh, residual side effects from this spinal infection. And, uh, and we were fed false hope for, for nearly a year, you know, saying that, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to make you whole again. Um, financially, you're never going to be physically okay again. Uh, but we're going to at least make you whole again. So you can continue to provide for your family and, uh, you know, receive one last lump sum, uh, to manage, you know, throughout the court, the course of my life, you know, I was 38 when I was hurt. I'm 41 right now. 
and uh, you know I haven't worked since January of 2016, and this um, you know this um, uh, financial compensation was you know supposed to you know to take care of my family and I and and, and get us through. This is just again a nightmare scenario, and it's something that you've gone through it. You've now seen this. You've gone through this process. And what I understand now is the reason that you're here and able to be in studio with us in Washington, D.C., is that Brian Talley's current mission is to change this law that the VA essentially was using to say, "Eh, not our fault. No, 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 no. We may have seen you at our ER and totally screwed up there, but this other person who just agreed with what we originally said, that's who's really responsible you're making an effort to change that law now, and you're meeting with lawmakers like Senator Ted Cruz, Representative Brian Mast. What's the process been like so far on trying to make people aware of this this loophole, as it were, that the VA tried to use to, for lack of a better term, screw you over? Yeah, you know, I'm just raising awareness on uh, what's going on so veterans know who is providing for them and who is taking care of them. Uh, more importantly, I'm looking for the VA uh, to openly admit what they did to my family and I, and I'm looking for accountability, and I'm looking for justice, and I'll tell you why. Um, when the VA attorneys first started talking to me, they told me that both the ER and my primary care physicians were responsible for this. Once they found out at that 10-month mark, 10-and-a-half-month mark, once they found out that I had a primary care, that my primary care was an independent contractor, they completely reversed course, threw her under the bus, stated that the ER did everything they could and met the standard of care and blamed everything on the primary care physician. Therefore, fully denying my claim uh, for the FTCA law that was written in 1964, I believe 72 years ago, that states that uh, veterans that are um, that are hurt in VA hospitals by the hands of independent contractors, are uh, they cannot get any settlements uh, for that type of um, you, you know, for the malpractice and for the neglect. Essentially, the VA protects these independent contractors. Now, I live in California where the state statute of limitations are one year. So at the 10 and a half month mark, they, t- they tell me that, that my primary care physician is responsible and I need to sue her in state court. I immediately filed suit in state court. It got thrown out and they said, your statute of limitations are blown. So there's nothing that we can do for you. Um, so the VA was pointing the finger at the primary care, the state was pointing the state and the doctor's, uh, council was pointing the finger at the VA. So here I am in the middle with my family, my four kids, my wife of 20 years, uh, my health is depleted. I've lost my spine. I've got 12 to 15 other medical, uh, uh diagnoses now that are going to affect me for the rest of my life. And I'm in the, and I'm in the middle and I'm the only guy here that's losing because they, they, they completely put all the blame on the independent contractor. They wiped their hands clean of it, did an about face, and left me just out in the cold, completely slipped through the cracks. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets.
What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day. Super producer JQ's here sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is down in Florida doing some fantastic stuff with uh, this veteran conference going on down there. Going to get a lot of really cool information, lots of really cool stories, so make sure you stay tuned. And I'm going to remind you one more time because I'm going to keep doing it until you do it. Check out the website, ConnectingBets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related and... Make sure you're following us on social media. We are at Connecting Bets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off in the veteran sphere. We stay on top of that stuff because we are the veteran community just like you. Now, it's Tuesday, and you know what that means. Taco Tuesday. What? What? But... More importantly, this week we again finally have a very prestigious guest, a good friend of the show, Justin Brown of Hill Vets. Justin, how's it going, man? Hey, how you doing, man? Good to be here. And, I'm, uh, I'm good. Feel, I feel like there were some nuances in there, giving me a hard time. That's okay. No, no, it's good. You're a good, you're a good prestigious guest of the show. We love having you. And uh, but you weren't here last year, uh, last week because you were climbing a mountain. Yeah, that's right. I uh, went uh, out with a couple of good friends here in the area, and we went and climbed uh, Mount Whitney, so which is the, the the tallest mountain in the lower forty eight. That's cool, man. So you're getting uh, you you're on this big health kick. You recently went vegan, which we have never stopped giving you crap for. Yep. You're climbing mountains, and you've got something in your cup right here that looks like something from like a prop from The Exorcist. It's- so exactly what is it? It's vegan magic, my friend. You know, vegan you, magic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just you, you throw the fruits and veggies in there, and and and, and nuts, and all that good stuff, and you, you hit blend, and it apparently it turns green. Well, hey, if it, if it's good for you, it's, good, it's probably better than any of the crap I'm eating. So you know what? Might be. <laughs> Might be. Well, I'm a I'm a frozen dinner ranger. That's that's what I do at my frozen home. Frozen dinner ranger. Hell yeah. yeah, we 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 got to get you one of these, man. We're gonna get you a blender. Oh Lord, I'm gonna start being healthy. God help me. Uh, Lord but, knows I need it. But no, I was I was told that uh, apparently climbing Mount Whitney is type, and and I think the military can relate to this. In fact, I was given the military as an anal- as an analogy. It's type two fun. Uh, and apparently type one fun is fun while you're doing it. And type two fun is, you know, fun to look back on, not so fun while doing it. And, exactly. Uh, sounds very much like you're, you know, at least my military service. Yeah. <laughs> Mine too. Well, there's a lot of stuff we got to get to. Your email of topping, talking points was rather long. But the big talker here is that President Donald Trump has signed the Defense Department of Veterans Affairs fiscal 2019 budget into law on Friday. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Last Friday, President Donald Trump signed into law the the 2019 budget uh, for the for the VA. Uh, actually, did that uh, at the North Las Vegas VA Medical S- uh, Center, surrounded by officials and veterans. Uh, and it's a six percent increase uh, in terms of the overall budget, which which would make it the largest uh, veterans budget in in history. Now, you know, I'm going to caveat that caveat that with. Uh, that's pretty much been true every year for a very long time <laughs> as, as costs, uh, you know, related to veterans and veterans healthcare. And frankly, as healthcare costs have continued to go up, uh, the bill includes 1.1 billion for the start of a VA electronic healthcare record overhaul. We'll talk a little bit about that more in the show, uh, 400 million for opioid abuse, uh, and also 1.7 billion increased in money tied to the VA mission act. Uh, formerly known as Choice, 
which essentially will put more money into the VA uh, to essentially provide uh, community care and access to private health care at taxpayers' expense. So uh, a big bill for veterans in terms of you know making sure that the VA overall is funded. They, they really ran up against the deadline here, but at the end of the day, it looks like VA's got their, their cha-ching for the, for the year. All right, the cha-ching for the year. That, until, that, until they run out in you know, six, nine months. And, yeah, and, of course. And, and we're doing emergency appropriations for increased health care in the private sector. Of course, you, you can put it on the calendar. Yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll we'll circle circle square that. Let's on just the pick calendar. a month. Uh, May. May. All right. Yeah, May. We'll be talking about it. Right. That's a dark month. That's the month when I was born too. So that much bad stuff happening in one month. Your your actual birthday is my prediction. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm gonna keep that in mind. I'm gonna keep that in I, I, mind. I thought you might remember that one. So. Yeah, because Lord knows I have to remember it somehow. Uh, so, do you know what exactly this uh, the one point one billion? Or no, I'm sorry, the four hundred million for opioid abuse prevention. Do you know exactly what form that takes? I, I don't. I don't know the specifics surrounding the the, the four hundred million. I, I do know that um, you know veterans have have by and large been more affected by uh, the opioid epidemic than than g- the general population. Uh, VA is actually considered to have some degree been part of this problem in that, you know, in years past, uh, it was a lot easier to provide veterans with, uh, you know, painkillers, prescriptions, whatever it may be, uh, particularly when they come into the VA and, and, you know, have gotten addicted to these drugs than it is to necessarily deal with the root issue. Uh, you know, I think VA has taken a number of steps uh, over the, I would say, last five years to 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 really start to do a better job of tracking uh, what veterans are receiving opioids and in what form and what for and you know how much do they actually need in terms of uh, dealing with their pain. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, VA was certainly one of the big players in terms of this huge ramp up and and prescription of opioids that took place across the nation and 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 as we all know resulted in you know, what we're seeing in terms of, you know, the huge heroin epidemics going on across the country, uh, et cetera. Yeah, you're right. Because like you said, for the longest time, the VA has just said, well, especially if someone came in with something like chronic pain, mm-hmm. all they can really do is say, okay, well, here, here's some, uh, here's some morphine or some other, you know, uh, Vicodin or whatever here, take that, go, you're good, fine, have fun, right. which is the wrong answer because it doesn't treat the root cause. And at the same time, it, these powerful drugs i've taken vicodin once in my life when i had a wisdom tooth removed and i can tell you i was i had no pain mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that that's the little minimum i can tell you about that experience but at the end of the day it, uh, how does this jive with i mean this i think proves points that it well okay how am i trying to say this it seems paradoxical to me that at the same time they're saying oh we're going to fight this opioid epidemic they still have not gotten a bill to allow the VA to do research on medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. And do you see a correlation there? So I, I, I think that uh, to some degree, there, there are two different challenges. I think we can certainly highlight some places where VA has, you know, not, not frankly done a good job in one area and, and, and certainly not done a good job in looking at alternative treatments. I mean, it, I think we certainly see that in mental health care, uh, where I would argue some of the same 
approach is going on. It's easier to prescribe a bunch of pharmaceuticals than it is to necessarily deal with root mental health issues. Um, it's been hard to get VA to look at alternative treatments like Boulder Crest Retreat, uh, which is you know just having incredible impacts and changing veterans' lives. Um, you know, and is non-prescription pill oriented. In fact, most of the, the kids that end up going out there end up getting off their meds and they, they, they improve their lives substantially. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and I think the more we see the evidence in terms of, you know, mental health and, and, and psychotropics, uh, we know the news is bad news. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> uh, you know, I think not dissimilarly with pain, right? You know, the more we throw pills at the problem, it actually turns into a tailspin, which ends up being a worse problem at the end of the day. It ends up being drug addiction. Uh, you know, so there, there are certainly a number of places where I think, uh, you know, people who are working in veteran policy uh, in and around it, like myself, are, are hopeful that VA can start to take a step back, really question some of the fundamental, fundamental systems that they're using uh, in terms of short-term gains and what that actually means in terms of long-term health for veterans. And, and a lot of those systems are under fire right now. And, and frankly, I think all of the evidence we're seeing points that, that they should be. Uh, but, you know, I hope that they start taking a different look at this as, you know, that they're under attack and, and start looking at it as more as, you know, what are the real long-term effects that we're, we're having here and, and how can we make those positive long-term effects versus taking on all these short-term gains? Yeah, it seems to me that the the stock reaction for years has been when someone attacks the VA has been to kind of circle the wagons a little bit and be like, oh, no, no, we're doing our best. We're doing it. But because it's very difficult, especially because, you, you know, like you said, the rising health cost of health care, to be able to say, okay, yeah, the people – because. I think part of it goes to society in that we're all, we're a bit more of a immediate gratification society. So it's like we want to see results now. What are you doing now? Whereas a lot of these problems are going to time think of this is going to take time to really wrap our heads around and get a good uh, answer for it. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of you know when VA is criticized. Uh, they often do, you know, internally circle the wagons and, and, and work to justify their actions instead of, you know, taking a hard look at their actions and, 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 and trying to determine, you know, a way forward to figure out what are the actions that we can take as VA to ensure the best possible health care for veterans, period. You know, regardless of what we've done in the past, regardless of how we, 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 we generally thought about some of these problems. And, and it's really hard. It's really hard to get VA to think outside of the box. It's really hard, uh, honestly, to get VA to take a look at, you know, things that are working that, that were not created by VA, that maybe were not created by traditional mental health care like Boulder Crest Retreat. Uh, but, you know, when you start seeing, you know, when there, there starts to be, uh, very compelling evidence to show that you know dif different methodologies work um you know va should be at the forefront in, in terms of you know their history of, of research and they've actually done some really incredible research i mean va has led the way in many many breakthroughs in a number of different areas um we need to get to that back to that va where you know they're leading in terms of you know trying some things out that have you know positive records of evidence 
um, and 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 you know taking them to the forefront with especially with veterans that are that are open to trying something different. You're absolutely right, and, and that could be you know that could be mental health care. That could be um, you know uh, you know the, there are a number of ailments where you know marijuana I think has been you know clinically proven to 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 you know alleviate pain you know cancer whatever it may be. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, there's certainly an opening there as well. Okay. Well, it's one of those things we're gonna have to keep an eye on because the VA is a organization, I think like most of the government where you have to stay on top of them and keep that spotlight on them for them to really make change. Because if you don't, they'll just kind of go back to the way things were. Sure. But I mean, that's. Well, and the, the challenge with that too is, is VA can, you know, VA often turns into, you know, a punching bag. Um, you know, it's really, really easy to beat VA up on what it doesn't do right. Uh, VA rarely gets credit for what it does do very well. And, and, and you know, generally, and, and I think most, you know, polls, most uh, surveys, whatever it may be that you look at will, will highlight, you know, that there are some things that VA does pretty, pretty well. Um, I don't personally believe mental health care to be one of those things. Um, but I, I do believe in terms of general primary care, you know, surgery, whatever it may be. I think most veterans that have received those types of treatment will tell you that once they got to the doctor, the care was great. It's getting to the doctor. Right. <laughs> you know, so the it's bureaucracy. Every, yeah. It's everything in between, you know, from, from, you know, and I used VA recently, uh, you know, I, I use VA, you know, uh, I, for my healthcare and, and, um, you know, I, I can tell you I've used VA healthcare in a number of different geographic locations, um, I loved the healthcare I received at the VA in Salt Lake City, top to bottom. Um, you know, I couldn't walk into the hospital and not get offered a, a, a golf cart ride. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, like uh, you know, I don't think you'd get that anywhere in the private sector. You know, some, you know, some old veteran volunteering his time, and you know, hey, you need a ride to your appointment? And I was like, sure, let's go. <laughs> um, you know, but then you walk into D- DC VA Medical Center or any of its clinical C box on the outliers. Um, you know, and, and, and for me, the, again, my doctor, my primary doctor is great, but getting to him is always a nightmare. And, you know, that, that ends up being part of your, your overall experience, right? And and from the time you start to look for a parking space at a VA to the time you walk out and get back into your car, that is really the customer experience and the challenge VA faces and, and what they've got to work on getting right. And, I, and frankly, I think we've had two secretaries really, really recognize this one being Bob McDonald, former secretary, former uh, CEO of Procter and Gamble really understood that, you know, customer experience was a big part of this equation. Um, I think the current secretary recognizes that as well. Uh, but, you know, from the time you get a, a from the time you look for a parking space to the time you get back into that car, if anything goes wrong in that experience, that's essentially going to, you know, sh- shade your whole, your whole, your whole experience, right? Right. Uh, it doesn't matter if, you know, you, you got out of, you, you found a parking spot right away, you walked in the door and then the, the receptionist is just incredibly rude to you. And then, you know, you see the doctor, doctor gives you great care. That veteran's going to walk out of there being like, you know, those guys were rude to me. And so- Everybody at the VA has a stake in this game, and, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge to turn around a culture that, you know, in, in many places and locations is just is not that great. And DCVA Medical Center is one of those places. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I'm not going to give them any green lights until, you know, 
Right, until yeah, yeah, they start yeah. thinking of things. That's right. So that's something we'll have to stay on top of. Now, something else that we have to stay on top of is, um, let's see, uh, five former dep- uh, VA secretaries, wow, and more than two dozen veteran groups joined the fight last week over legislation that would extend Agent Orange benefits to tens of thousands of Navy veterans. This is the Blue Water Navy, correct? That is, right. What, what can you tell me about this? Yeah, so um, you know we've got a Senate Veterans Affairs Committee uh, hearing taking place uh, on Wednesday. Uh, 3 p.m. You should be able to go on to, if you go on to uh, Google Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, if you're interested in watching it, it's going to be 3 p.m. Eastern. And essentially, it's going to be the secretary, the new secretary of the VA, Rob Wilkie, uh, giving an update on his first 60 days as as the secretary of the VA. And there's going to be a lot to talk about. One of the things we certainly expect to come up is, you know, this fight with regards to Blue Water uh, Navy veterans. And essentially what this is, is, you know, I think all, you know, our listeners are, are, are fully aware of Agent Orange and the, the huge effects that that, that has had on uh, our nation's veterans. Blue Water Navy veterans are, are Navy veterans who are making the case that um, they believe that they were negatively affected by Agent Orange uh, off, off the shores of Vietnam. Um, now, if their boats ever went inland, uh, into Vietnam proper, um, and I think it's within a few miles off the shore, something to that effect. Uh, then they are eligible uh, to receive, you know, Agent Orange presumptions, essentially. Which you know, there are a number of conditions that if a veteran ever has, uh, that it's presumed that that condition was caused by their exposure to Agent Orange. One example of that is ischemic heart disease. That's a really big one. So. If any Vietnam veteran, whoever was on the mainland of, of Vietnam, gets ischemic heart disease, it's assumed that that was caused by their exposure to Agent Orange. Now, Blue Water veterans, Blue Water Navy veterans, are looking for this same level of treatment. Um, there was, there was, you know, a, a few, uh, well, some some pretty big things that happened. Uh, you know, a number of former VA secretaries, including Robert McDonald, Tony Principi, James Nicholson, James Peak. Uh, signed a letter uh, backing uh, sec- uh, Secretary Wilkie and suggesting that the there there simply wasn't enough, um, or at least not enough now, scientific evidence to establish a connection between Blue Water Navy veterans and Agent Orange. Um, Dr. David Shulkin, the last VA secretary, wrote a separate letter uh, basically acknowledging that there still was a lack of evidence, but to approve the legislation anyway. Um, from a policy per- perspective, uh, the challenge with this becomes um, a few things. One, um, there, there, there isn't enough evidence right now to provide a, you know, a, a causal link, and causal is a very high scientific barrier. But the, the barrier that they actually use is that they look at um, scientific evidence that's available, um, and they rate it as basically more likely than not. Does that make sense? So it's, yeah. kind of, it's kind of a 51% threshold. If I believe that this scientific evidence tells me that it's more likely than not um, that you know their exposure out to sea would, would cause um, Agent Orange, um, then I have to weigh that standard um, and, and basically approve a presumption. The secretary of the VA actually has the authority um, to, to review this and based on medical evidence provide a, pr- provide a presumption. Uh, Congress also has the ability to, you know, via legislation, also make this decision 
Um, and, and that's essentially what what the the Congress is looking at. Um, it's been a long, hard fight. I mean, veterans have been fighting this for, for a very, very long time. Um, you know, the challenge is, is that these veterans are not getting any younger. Um, and sometimes the challenge, and, and I think we'll see this with our generation of a veteran and burn pits, is that, you know, by the time you have enough medical evidence, you know, you're only getting a lot of medical evidence and correlations because veterans are being studies, studied as they're getting sick. Yeah, and that was going to be my question to you is that uh, there's, a, there's a conspiracy theory out there. I don't know if, we'll, know if it's actually a conspiracy theory, but it sounds like kind of sounds like one that the reason the VA doesn't want to approve these Blue Water Navy veterans presumption is that in the coming years, we're going to see more and more evidence about the negative effects of burn pits, and that presumption is going to be a, uh, uh, a precedent. That could say, well, you did it for these guys who were so far out to sea that they may have had barely any exposure. What about us that were sitting right next to burning jugs of human crap? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I first I would say I think that there have been instances of different uh, presumptions and exposures that have resulted in different outcomes. So I don't know that. I don't know that the outcome of Blue Water Navy veterans is 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 necessarily going to dramatically affect um, how we deal with burn pits. Uh, I certainly do believe that policymakers are going to take a hard look at what this outcome is in consideration of that. So I, I do think there will be some effect, and that you know policymakers are going to going to look at how this was previously done. I don't know that that's necessarily going to lead to a different decision. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that, you know, is concerning and that, that, that we want to keep a hard look, you know, take a hard look at, I think with, um, you know, one of the challenges that we really face in this space is that with any presumption, what you end up doing in terms of policy is you end up providing benefits to, to, you, you have two choices. You can either require each individual veteran to prove that, whatever disease they have was caused by something, whatever it may be, burn pits, you know, car crash, whatever it may be. You can do that on a case-by-case basis. That's very difficult once you start talking about cancers, et cetera, and, 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 and toxic exposures. It's just really hard to prove. So you're going to end up denying, in that scenario, you're going to end up denying a lot of veterans uh, health care and benefits uh, that, 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 very may likely have have gotten this ailment because of their exposure to burn pits, Agent Orange, whatever it may be. Yeah. The al- the alternative policy is to create a presumption. Now, the challenge with presumption is you're you're going to end up giving a lot of veterans, a lot more veterans, benefits in healthcare than than maybe otherwise um, would have received them. So so what am I saying? I mean, you're going to have people who maybe were never exposed to any of those. <laughs> you know, any of those ailments or or causative factors, but they ended up with the same medical condition. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so, you know, you either, there's, there's no perfect scenario here. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think um, has been looked at is, you know, how do we do a better job, especially during war? And that's, that's a real challenge of, of tracking toxic exposures. Now, you know, and they've, surprisingly come up with some pretty nifty stuff. I mean, they can put like, you know, these little 
cotton swabs and helmets and stuff. And, you know, that can like pick up, you know, uranium exposure and, you know, you can test that little swab and, 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 and then know what somebody has been exposed to. Um, you know, but there's no perfect answer here. And the, the, the reality of the situation is, is granting presumptions is extraordinarily expensive. And, and depending on how broad those are, um, you know, it can be a real challenge. I know when Secretary Shinseki passed uh, the ischemic heart disease uh, presumption uh, for Agent Orange, for Vietnam veterans uh, uh, exposed to Agent Orange, uh, you know, that was a huge deal affected. Uh, hundreds of thousands of veterans and, and cost billions and billions of dollars. Okay, so I there are more topics, but I apologize you ran out of time. Nope, if you want to learn more about Hillvets, where do they go? Uh, check us out at check us out at hillvets.org or find us uh, on Twitter at Hillvets. All right, you've been listening to the morning briefing. Thanks for tuning in. He's Justin, he's Justin Brown. I'm JQ. You're awesome, and we will see you guys tomorrow. Take care. Thanks. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.